era un hombre muy rico, que tenía muchos animales salvajes. Tenía tigres, leones, pumas, panteras, jaguares. Un día llegaron los cuascas y lo mataron. El caco y los demás guascas mataron a todos los animales. Pero cuando llegaron a la jaula del tigre, había escapado. Y ahora anda rondando por todas las calles, enojado y hambriento. Come perros, gatos, y niños que no tienen papás. podcast exploring faith and fear, what scares us and what saves us. This is The Fear of God. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Fear of God podcast. Your favorite podcast, my favorite podcast, uh, to my understanding, Tigers of the World's favorite podcast. We'll get to more than that in a bit. Speaking to you right now is one of your hosts, Nathan Rouse. Now, typically with me is nigh on two decades long chum, three years running podcast host. At this point, probably about two years running late to the recording podcast host, Reed Lackey. Reed was here, um, you know, I, I swear to you guys, I know you probably don't believe me that he's ever around, but he was, but he hurriedly made a reference to how he had to go work on his rap for the talent show. And, you know, we're doing a talent show for the podcast, just by the way, um, you know, coming to a abandoned space near you, um, soon, 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 but before we get there, um, you know, just wanted to let you guys know we are more or less in the ultimate film, not the penultimate, the ultimate film, the penultimate episode of Speaking in Tongues Phase 2. This has been, um, I know my tone of voice is a little, you know, sardonic, but I love this series. I hope you guys have enjoyed the series. You guys and gals have enjoyed the series. I'm sure I speak for Reed while he's off rapping, um, you know, working on that, that he loved this series as well. It's been real Meaningful, real ministering to look at films from across the world, these horror films. What what are the things that scare us throughout this wide world? And it's been really fascinating to walk uh, in, in the spirit of Jesus being on every road for us to partner in that journey. 
Uh, we, we covered phase one back in September. We are finishing the films of phase two today with the uh, Spanish language film Tigers Are Not Afraid. Part of speaking in tongues, um, if you want the full dish, go back and listen to the whaling episode. But part of speaking in tongues, a person, a person, <laughs> where is Reed when I need him? A portion of every merch perch you make during speaking in tongues, meaning today or next week. Um, uh, at our T Public store. So go to tpublic.com, search the Fear of God podcast, all one word. A portion of the proceeds from any merch perch that transpires during speaking in tongues will be donated to the Florence Project. Um, look them up. They're doing really great work. When it comes to a merch perch, you there's there's just a bevy, a myriad, a veritable cornucopia of products that you can choose that features the inimitable Jacob Hunt's art emblazoned upon them and mine and reed's silly mugs on it speaking of mugs you can get a mug you can get a mug you can get a t-shirt you can get a pillow you can get uh, a cell phone case haven't done that yet you can get a sticker you can get a magnet reed reed you're back buddy you're gonna spit some game for us yeah so don't don't call me reed on the show now you call me rap reed that's uh that's my name now it's, it's rap reed so uh, rap i'm reed. gonna i'm gonna yeah and i'm gonna I'm, you had like I'm, five I'm, minutes and that's that's what you came I'm up refer- with. It's a specific call out to the show, you dummy. But so anyway, so like, uh, so, so yeah, like my name is Rap Reed, and uh, and so like you know, and I and I come in like a fiery steed, and uh, and uh, you're gonna enjoy my rhymes indeed, and uh, you you know I know what you need, and uh, you know I'm gonna plant my seed. And, whoa, it got weird. So, <laughs> so let's, get a little thirsty. Is, gonna throw back some mead. What? <laughs> Getting all medieval on it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. oh, uh, I know what you're smoking. Nah. What? <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. You know they can't all be winners, guys. Like they're just you know some of them. Some of them when they're dead, they just lay there. They just uh, you know they just. They don't. They don't work. But we press on. We you know read, we we read, we, read, we read, continue. Read. <laughs> Speaking of pressing on, you are doing that, brother. Let me press in and press pause. Um, Reed, we're in, <laughs> we are ramping into the. We're, we're bringing speaking in tongues into home. Um, but we are. We are. You know. You know. It's. It has been a good ride, and you know. But it's not done yet. And I just. I just wanted to let you know, Reed. There's. There's a bit that we need to get to. Okay. There's some okay. before we get. About the 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 tigers, like a scaredy cat. Hmm. Interesting. Hadn't thought about that phrase in relation to this movie. But um, before we get to tigers are not afraid, I did just want to remind you that <clears throat> in the woods of Winden, Germany, two days before an apocalypse, the apocalypse. What what could it be? It remains to be seen. But we now travel back to Winden, Germany, home of a nuclear power plant on the brink of shutdown, home of time-tossed characters, bootstraps and their paradoxes. Is it one time machine? Is it a dozen time machine? Time machines. (laughs) What character in Winden doesn't know about time travel? And why does Ulrich have to face the repercussions of a thing that everyone else now knows about? Poor guy. It is time once more to go to TV guideposts. Uh, I love, <laughs> like, 
<laughs> a little insertion there. I don't know if Before, it's unclear, but I don't script those. No, uh, <laughs> it's painfully obvious. So, <laughs> so I love a little insertion there. Poor guy. Just, <laughs> so, this character's gone through all of this trauma. And I mean, poor guy. Poor guy. Um, That's a tough break yeah. for old Ulrich Nielsen. It's, it's a tough break indeed. Um, so a little peek behind the curtain, ladies and gentlemen. So uh, one of the episodes that we're covering today, uh, we are covering episodes five and six of season two. And uh, one of these episodes, Nathan had called out two, ep- two weeks ago on Goodnight Mommy. He had called out that episode six was uh, arguably his favorite episode of the series so far. I had mentioned last week about how when Nathan is really galvanized by some material, he will uh, he will text me. He will you know reach out to me and be like, "Hey, I loved that. I thought that was great." <laughs> what I was what I was unprepared for is his the na- rabid the eagerness, <laughs> his rabid eagerness for me to watch episode six. Like I think you asked me on this one. Like I think you asked me probably seven times. Like I would wake up. Well, what's to a funny? Text, hey, have you watched it yet? What's like, funny is what you did get was actually me holding back. I was like, Dad, come, come on, come on, come on. <laughs> like, come on. Well, in watch fact, this movie. You know, I don't always put together uh, just the fact that I'm three hours ahead of you. And so, (laughs) you know, when I'm in the midst of nighttime viewings of whatever they are, it's like, I bet Reed's watched six by now. I'll text you. And you're like, no, (laughs) no. Oh, wait, no. It's really just (laughs) six o'clock there. You're in like prime family time, dinner time. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But, but hey, let's not touch six yet. Don't even, I don't want to hear anything. Let's, let's unpack some five. Uh, we are going to, cause I, like I'm prepping myself for the stunning blow that's going to happen. You're like, I hated six, Nathan. I'm just, I'm just prepping for it. Um, uh, no, no, no response. Um, episode five lost and found. So episode five has a lot more talking going on. So, uh, so many moving pieces in this episode. Yeah. 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 Uh, I'll, we'll go down, down the list here. Uh, I love the moment when Katarina just like lays Hannah out. Well, one, I love the moment when Katarina says, this is pretty much at the top of the episode. I think she's mm. reflecting on newfound knowledge. And she says, he was always here right in front of me, referring to Miko. Mm. This is when she's at the Conwald house with Hannah. Right, right. And, then your girl went all cold on Hannah. She was oh like, my gosh, I can't believe you slept with my husband and my son, but you <laughs> always did want what belonged to me. Yeah. No kidding. That, I do love that. <laughs> I do love that. You know, some things just never change. Even at the end of time, at the end of the world, the apocalypse is right in front of us. We're like, Meow! you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's like tigers are not afraid. Oh, Katarina, she is a tiger. <laughs> she is a tiger. Oh man, she will. Yeah, she is uh, not holding back, uh, even in the midst of substantial. Like that is the takeaway that she has hurled at Hannah. Like, oh yeah, in uh, in this massive expanse of like. First of all, let's just swallow the fact that time travel is real in this right, universe. Right, right, right. And time travel is real. But then she's just still got to throw that jab. Like, you slept with my husband and my son. Like, <laughs> like, oh my gosh. It's uh, yeah, she's pretty cold hearted. And I think this is the episode. I'm gonna prattle for a minute here. I think this is the episode where prattle. um, it opens with Elder Jonas just leaving the house. Like. My man, mm-hmm. 
my man's just like doing nothing this whole season. <laughs> he's just doing nothing. He's like, then this next scene, he's breaking and entering the Nielsen house. Like, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah. yeah EJ, yeah, yeah. that's his name, EJ. That's his rap name, EJ. <laughs> and so it's like he just chills at Mama's until he's not anymore and without a word breaks into the home of his teen girlfriend who's also his aunt you know like Ugh, yeah. that ain't that ain't right that ain't right. right and then you know what sucks Reed is like I really like Charlotte in season one I'm not a I'm not a big Charlotte fan season two I'm not standing really? for Charlotte in season well it's just stupid stuff like like okay Jonas breaks into the Nielsen home and then oh boom next scene he's in the bunker like okay you're you're jumping times you're teleporting across town like come on give me a break ej <laughs> uh he's not really teleporting but it feels like it um and charlotte's like breaking down and she's like i think all of this has to do with me like the back <laughs> the background of the scene in the bunker is like the the friggin you know every scrap of information and 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 artist rendering of important figures uh across the time space continuum and she's like Oh, I think this has to do with me. That is a pretty bold and selfish yeah, thing to say right, right, when right, right. <laughs> the space time continuums online. Like, what do you even know? What are you talking about? It's all about you. You don't even know enough to say that. Yeah, I understand. It's 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 very narcissistic kind of comment. Well, and then see, you get me fired up here with all, all, right. this, all this work you're doing. EJ <laughs> just like breaks out the time machine to her. My yeah. guy is just opening up this time machine to everybody. He is like the Oprah of cosmic information. He's like, you get a revelation about time travel. You get a revelation about time travel. Everybody, look under your seat. You get a revelation like a, about time travel. It's like a cue line to the bunker for people to just walk in. It's like, okay, for your 30 minutes, we're going to talk about the bootstrap paradox. Did you, did you get your fast pass? Mm. <laughs> Turning you away. Oh my gosh! So, uh, so yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I don't hate her in this season, but I, I do well, agree I, well, with I what you're hate. saying. You know, uh, oh well, okay, you're not, you're not as fond of her as you were in season one. Um, but uh, we do, you know, one major answer uh, that we didn't know we wanted and maybe don't want uh, is uh, who Charlotte's father is in this, uh, in this episode. Well, what, if, okay, well, speak to that. What did you think about that? Um. It was so to be honest, in a show that had a lot of th- particularly this season had a lot of things that I kind of saw coming um that i that was a bit out of the blue for me that Noah was her father um and I don't have any prominent theories at the moment of who her mother is, although he you know gave some dropped some pretty heavy clues to that but um I mean, I didn't mind it from a from a character connection point of view, but it it was one of those things that kind of just melded into everything else about how everybody is related somehow to each other and that they are, you know, somehow like it's the snake eating its tail kind of thing. I was just right. like, okay, well, everybody, everybody's going to have a connection uh, to somebody or something else. And so, um, so it didn't like, I, you know, I did write down, I, I'm, there were really only two notes that I took on this lost and found episode. And one of them was, oh, dang, uh, Noah is straight up Charlotte's father. So I did like... Uh, possibly even loved her the the actor's reaction to that revelation. Like when Charlotte found that out, mm-hmm. uh, like I get you know just as a bit of acting, I, I like that quite a bit. But uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know ultimately the ramifications of what that will mean for the show uh, as well, a whole. So. so you do because 
I mean, they prop this up in like the first episode of Charlotte crying in the car over my parents. Like, I, I don't know. I didn't, <laughs> didn't know. Didn't know that was a question we needed to ask. But you do learn. <laughs> you do learn who the mother is, and that's a much more compelling answer than than uh, Noah than than Noah being her dad. And oh, okay. This okay. is right. this is the real cynical hot take for me. Is I don't know if you've put the pieces of this puzzle together. So when Noah kills elder Claudia, um, yes. old, old Claudia, he retrieves the the missing pages of this mysterious yes. book, which is funny because yes. last week you made a reference to, I don't remember this book's origin. Yeah, cynical me is like, well, right, because they needed some new mythology nuggets to sort of move oh, narrative oh, yeah. around. It's like, oh, let's say there's a book that Sigmundus created. Like, what? What are you talking about? Where is this stuff coming <laughs> from? Um, yeah. Everything's a bootstrap. Um, <laughs> it's, like, it's like, gosh. Um, <laughs> no, it's like, is Goofy Reviews dark? Like, what is it? Gorsh. That, 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 was just, that was just for Ned. Shout out, Ned. It, it um, was. It yeah, was. yeah, it was. It was. So, so, um, Noah, you know, plays this malevolent role in season one. They reveal a bigger bad in Adam and which then makes Noah kind of his lieutenant and reveal the notion of this book, whatever it is. Um, mm. Well, he retrieves from Claudia's body, these missing pages. Those pages are what I would call the plot device more than necessary storytelling element that just propel him into a new arc, which is, Oh no, uh, now I know who my daughter is and she's Charlotte. Cause, uh, cause that's the point is he didn't know. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So, so I'm sorry. That was a long winded way of saying, no, I didn't know. Okay. Well that's okay. So that's, I mean, yeah, that does add some additional sort of heft to that. Sure. Reveal. It does. Uh, it do, it, yeah. I don't disagree with that as an idea, but, and this is just coming to me in real time, but it would matter a hell of a lot more if Noah's curiosity about where his missing daughter is was present at all in season one, which it's not. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And of course. Yeah. And that's, no, I, that's I, where I stuff like that. that gets really frustrating. Sure. Um, sure. Although, I, and you know, is it going from 10 episodes to eight? I don't know, but this, you made this reference a minute ago. It feels like a lot of character work gets sacrificed this season in favor of just pushing pieces around the board without much right. impact. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, all of this Charlotte Noah scene. I'm like, where I, I want to believe there's a bunch of Charlotte material on the cutting room floor somewhere. Cause I'm like, mm-hmm. they, mm-hmm. they make a bunch of just character leaps with her this season that get kind of frustrating. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I get that. My last major note on five, speaking of, character moments i do love this and it may be my favorite character moment of the season um is uh evidenced in the script line where a character says to another you said it's not how but when do you remember that dude i love that scene so that entire that entire sequence i told you I, i told you i wrote down two notes i wrote down oh dang noah is charlotte's father and I just wrote the entire scene when old Ulrich finally sees oh, Nico great. again. That entire, uh, like, beginning to end, like, him appearing at their house, mm-hmm. seeing Miko there. Miko kind of is unsure, like, oh, you look a little familiar or whatever. But then his when, callback that yeah. you just mentioned, uh, the, the stuff that both of them, I mean, obviously we gravitate and sing a lot of praises for the actor playing old Ulrich, um, but uh, the young actor playing Mikkel there just delivers some great stuff. It's 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 a really 
compelling. So this is uh, this is not intended to be a backhanded compliment, but if you'll recall, I kind of sort of tapped out a little bit on Ulrich after he tried to kill Helga. Yeah, you yeah. Know? And um, this scene was kind of enough to just sort of pivot me right back to the character. Oh, I was just great. like, oh, man, like, yeah, like Ulrich's been through a lot, man. But this that whole sequence, I was just well, the was second, really moved. The first time I saw it, the second he starts to turn the cup over, I was arrested. I was like, oh, man, my heart is in my throat. That's so good. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's uh, so, yeah, it's a it's a really powerful scene. Honestly, um, I'm going to cite that. Uh, not tipping my hand too much into my thoughts on six, but I'm gonna cite that moment, that scene of Ulrich with young Mikkel as my favorite moment of the se- of season two thus far. That is my favorite. Uh, yeah, that's my uh, favorite moment. Uh, one of my favorite moments of the show yeah. entirely. Uh, but it is it is probably my favorite moment of season two so far. I, I well, loved it. I loved and, everything about it. And again, I'll continue to hang a hat on Ul- Ulrich as a character. Like even in this episode there's two subsequent scenes with him. One is that wrenching moment of him in the cop car when he sees all the kids. Yes. Oh my gosh. And what's brilliant about that moment in a season that admittedly has far fewer brilliant moments than season one did. uh, What's brilliant about that moment is to the people contemporary to that time frame, that only further solidifies his delusion or their perspective yeah. of his delusion that he's just he's just calling every kid he sees his children. Right. What what we as the viewers know is like no, those are <laughs> that's right. really his children, and he has not seen them for thirty three years. Right. Right. Oh man, it's well, and then follows that you know I, I don't know if you were going to mention yeah. this, but yeah, the the final moment we see of him sort of in the montage is just. It's devastating. It's really. You mean uh, of him bound to the bed? Bound to the bed, yeah. the look on his face, just, just like writhing weeping. against his restraints and weeping. And it's just, yeah, oh, it's, uh, yeah, it's haunting. It's really haunting. Well, and, you know, again, I think depending on where season three goes, Ulrich may be my winner of the series uh, in terms of just how interesting of a character he is because you've got, yeah, you've got your characters like Jonas and Claudia. Um, who are kind of on top of the mythology, you know, like they, yeah, they sure, kind of sure. stand astride all the goings on. You've got an Egon who kind of is in the mix, but is not really, he's adjacent to impact really, you know? Mm, um, mm-hmm. But then you've got a character like Ulrich who is utterly the victim of the mythology. And and to me, that's just yeah. a really fascinating sort of, it's it's just a much more interesting story. Uh, yeah, his, I agree. his thread. So, do you have anything else on five? Nope, nothing else on five. All right. So, I'm going to intro six and then I want to get your response. So, episode okay. episode six of season two is titled An Endless Cycle. <clears throat> My first, uh, uh, episode five, to, to preface, episode five ends with Adam in 1921 propping up Jonas, young Jonas, saying, you, there, the event that spawned all of this is Michael, your father's suicide, our father's suicide. You have to go to that day and stop him from committing suicide. Um, and so episode five ends with Jonas in 21 entering the God particle in 21 to, to, yeah. you know, kind of theoretically port to 80, not 86, but uh, 2019. 19, right. 2019. Um, and, and so, and in the cycle opens and my experience of watching this episode was just, the, the longer it went, the more in love with the single episode I got. 
Um, and I'll just kick you off by just saying, I'm read. I just need you to know we're not, we're not, we're not fa- FaceTiming here, but like I'm holding up my mm. hand. I'm holding up my hand brother for an ultimate fist bump. Oh, just, ultimate fist just, bump. So what, what you feeling, man? What'd you, what'd you think? Okay. So, um, did I overhype you? There's a couple of layers to, to my <laughs> comment and response. So sure. I'm going to pivot back and forth into some some cheers and some disappointments. So, oh, no. So the cheers, the absolute cheers, um, I love the premise of this singular episode. Love it. Yes. Love that, like, we're going back to a time. Uh, so, so this is a show that dances around in time, and they've shown us, like, the past in air quotes, but no, we're going back, you know, uh, a season and a half in. We're going back to the day before all of this began. So we're seeing characters far more developed uh, as characters. Or like, you know, we're, we're reacquainting ourselves with characters that now we have a lot more depth to these relationships and these sure. moments. And as a, as, as a premise for an episode, I absolutely love it. Absolutely love it. Um, I'm going to get to some other things that I love about the episode in a moment. One, so overhype is the wrong word. Overhype is not an appropriate word for it. Um, as I've as I've evidenced on the recordings of the show, for some bizarre reason, I have been able uh, a little bit more than I normally do with films and television shows that I watch. I have been able to somewhat intuit what uh, the show is doing, um, which is a bit odd for me. Like I'm not patting myself on the back and being like, "I'm so smart, I know all this stuff." Like it's a bit odd. <laughs> it's a bit odd for me to be on the wavelength the way that I am. The reason being. The episode, the moment that you mentioned from five, uh, when Adam says you've got this is what started everything. You've got to go back. I wrote I, I to myself. I didn't write it down four or five, but I said uh, thought in my mind right then. I was like, oh, he's going to go back to try to stop it, and he's going to cause it. Like I, I, You're I, full I, of crap. I, I, no, I. You I, didn't write look, it down anywhere, did you? No, I, you no, didn't. I didn't. It doesn't no, matter. I didn't write it down. Uh, but I, but I, and, and some of that I can substantiate by that is actually something of a, I won't, to call it common is unfair, but it is a recurring theme of science fiction time travel stories where people will go back to try to prevent something and ultimately wind up causing the thing that they sure. tried yeah. to prevent. So, uh, so when Adam is like, this will stop all of this, I was like, oh, he's going to go back and he's going to cause Michael's suicide. Um, and so, so there's some things that I love that happen in the episode. Some things that I absolutely love. All right. Now listen, be honest. Was the thought actively and articulately and explicitly he's actually going to cause it or this isn't going to go the way it's being presented? It was. And, and the only evidence that I have to this is listeners go back to my, uh, recording on pod, uh, the evidence of Jonas, uh, being the stranger and how, you know, I'm not going to lie to you about what I intuited and what I didn't. It was actively, he is going to cause Michael suicide. That was actively my thought. And it was because Adam was very specific to Are you future read? I am. Well, I'm just weird. It's really weird. (laughs) But it was because Adam was so deliberate about, he was saying, if you can somehow stop his suicide. Sure, sure. And I'm sitting here, I'm like, this is a show. This, I mean, all of these things sort of spiraled in my head. I was like, this is a show where the only reason the book A Travel Through Time exists is because somebody went back and told them about it. The only reason this time trap is, it's this whole bootstrap paradox thing. Right. And so. Well, and it's also, to, to your credit here, I mean, like, 
I don't think I had that act of a thought. Maybe I wasn't even dialed in that heavily to even ponder that that was going to happen. But uh, mm-hmm. it's all, I mean, the, the premise of the convention in the show itself is whatever happened, happened. And so, right, you know, right. But that said, and, and, and I think you're acknowledging this with your affection for the premise. And, and you know, I think any, because even rewatching it, you know, I could see, uh, okay, there are aspects to it that aren't amazing. But just for me personally, I love the bottle nature of the episode. It is pretty self-contained. Yeah, I, I yeah, did, I do like, love that. Yeah. Like you described, I love just seeing these characters engage in ways that don't involve talking about time travel. Um, yeah, And right. three, I was really just, I just, it never occurred to me. I do love the notion. This is what happened to me. It never occurred to me that the precipitating incident for the entire series, like the literal show you're watching not just the events within the show we'd go back and see oh wait a minute <laughs> you thought right, you thought right. this was just a framing device really we're going to go back and and make it a catalyst for the, the content of the show and i yeah, that that i really love not yeah, so much not so much that jonas incites it which is fun and 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 fascinating but just right oh right. this is just a cool kind of like idea sure and and so i that having been said um, I mentioned just a few moments ago that uh, my contender for favorite moment of the show of the se- season, definitely possibly favorite moment of the show, is old Ulrich reuniting with Mikkel, uh, in a similar fashion. The Jonas reuniting with Michael scene, even though we have not That's spent so a good. tremendous am- oh, it's wonderful. Even though we've not spent a tremendous amount of time with Michael as a character because he offs himself in the first moments of season one, and then we don't really see him except in pictures after that. Um, but that scene between the two of them is really powerful. And, uh, you know, the actors really deliver a lot of emotional heft, uh, particularly considering sort of in the real, you know, they probably would not have spent a tremendous amount of time together. Um, so that it's a really volcanic scene. Um, what's fascinating to me about it is I am interested to see, and this, this is something I'm tracking with and that I feel I'm going to be disappointed by in this season I'm very interested in the interplay they keep pivoting back and forth of uh, whether or not Adam is benevolent or whether or not Claudia is benevolent. Because depending on which side you are on, both sides are saying that the other of them is bad and wrong and and all of this other sort of stuff. Now, I had mentioned something uh, last week about my incredulity of... Uh, you know, Adam is saying he's Jonas, and then Jonas talks about Adam in this very disconnected way when he's speaking to the bunker people. What I did note that I thought was interesting is this is a moment when, you know, Jonas is talking with Michael, who used to be Meikle. Um, so Jonas is talking to him, and and Michael even says, maybe you only showed me the letter so I would know what it would say. And I was like, oh, man, I'm, I'm so smart. But, um, so, <laughs> so, but basically, like, so, but basically, like, he, you know, he says maybe maybe this was all just, you know, so that I would know and so that I would start this and the thing. Well, then Claudia comes and Claudia, old Claudia, speculates to him, you know, like, you've got to fight yourself. You've got to. Uh, you know, like you need to do this thing. This is the light versus the darkness and everything. And I'm like, okay, well, this somewhat substantiates Jonas's internal conflict because in that bunker scene I referenced, although I didn't say it last week when I t- when I referenced it, he also talks about Claudia having lost her way, that she became what she was trying to fight. 
And so I found that interesting because this scene in An Endless Cycle, which is the name of the episode we're discussing, that scene shows Claudia like sort of leading Jonas into the inevitability of everything. I did love the reveal that, and I did not see this coming. I did love the reveal that future Jonas or, you know, time traveling version of Jonas Elder is the Jonas. one who grabbed Elder Jonas. Uh, it's not Elder Jonas. Oh, no. you mean young teen. Okay. I know. What you're, I'm I, sorry. Yeah. Young time traveling Jonas yes, is yes. the one who led Mikkel through the cave, which is what you had either found either. You speculated yeah, it yourself. Is pretty or, cool. It was yeah. that it was the interview I found uh, uh, yeah, dated yeah. just after season one, where I actually think the interviewer, um, mm, said mm. to the showrunner he was interviewing or she was interviewing the I think Claudia put Gretchen through the cave. I think young Jonas put Meikle through the cave. And I was like, oh, well, somebody called that right <laughs> way before this released. Right. Um, well, and um, and so, so to pivot backwards just a bit, I want to because I don't want to leave the scene without mentioning it. So another aspect that I love about the scene where Jonas talks with Michael is there's a difference between the bunker scenes that we've been seeing where a character in the know is informing a bunch of characters who are not in the know about what's going on. There's a difference of power between scenes like that, which I think you're not very fond of and and I'm a little bit more taken with, but then with Jonas talking to older Michael, you have two characters who have been in the know for a long period of time now finally getting to talk to someone who understands. You know, like Meikle grew up knowing this secret, carrying this secret, and now he can talk to Jonas freely because Jonas knows what the deal is. And and I, I found that pretty remarkable because we, we kind of got that a little bit in the old Ulrich with young Meikle scene, but it, they didn't extrapolate a lot on it. I just loved the exchange that they had. They're, they're, but uh, the, as the, the relief as characters to be able to finally speak to someone who understands the weirdness of what this dynamic yes. is. I just, I, I loved that. Well, and that got earned. Absolutely. It's to me the difference. Fully earned. And so yes. like, because, uh, but do you I'm, see that? Well, uh, I apologize for cutting you yeah. off, but do you see the difference. It's not just that the show earns it. There's a difference in dynamic of a character in the know saying to people who are not in the know versus two characters who have, who have been in the know for a long time, finally getting to come together and speak a common language. Like even if they sure. had earned the bunker scene, it would still have probably been a bit more galvanizing to me to see, oh, these two characters are finally able to breathe freely and speak openly about things that they've probably never been able to talk to anybody this freely about. Yes, but I also think from a pure scripting standpoint, it also is that whole scene is born of character and intention. Yes. Whereas to yeah. me, yeah. the bunker scenes are pure exposition it's mm. it, the, yeah, no, the, the the physical characters in that space don't matter. It's just bodies talking to bodies about things that yeah, have happened. Yeah, but it's just sharing information. Yeah, yeah. Um, so one, I got to give a shout out to my girl Belinda Carlisle because heaven is a place on <laughs> earth, but it is not on wind in wind in Germany for sure. Um, no, that, no, indeed. That that song that might be played at my funeral. Um, but. <laughs> Golly, I love the scene between Jonas and Michael. Because what's interesting now, this is my interpretation after two, but you might have a different take. I don't know. I I think it's a little stretch to say adult Michael has remembered the whole time. 
I think there's hmm. because there's a moment of dialogue. I would encourage you to rewatch just that scene. Even there's a moment of dialogue where he says something to the to Jonas in the scene he's with, but it ultimately kind of disappeared. Something he either used disappeared or vanished, and he's referencing just the the nature of his arrival. Right. Right. Um, anyway, I, I do love that, and it kind of helped, at least in my understanding of that line, helped explain a little bit how he's able to occupy the space. Though I do, I do also think there's power in the takeaway that maybe he is conscious the entire his entire existence. It's just you, you know when when you wrestle down that one, that's that's a, that's hard to, to sort through. Um, in the pra- sure. in, practically speaking, him living now, and you made this note a minute ago, like. So much is asked of that actor in that scene, and man, he delivers. Yeah, um, oh, uh, in spades, it, he's an incredible performer. It's, I mean, it's when, really strong. When Jonas, fr- from the moment Jonas says "I know," and he's mm-hmm. he's wrestling with like, wait, what are we talking about here? I mean, yeah. just yeah. the the amount he has to transmit in those moments um, is so powerful. And there's more. There's more we could discuss about. Six, if we want, there is a funny aside about. I told my wife that the only German I'm really learning from watching Dark is the phrase "Was ist das?" Because it means <laughs> "What is this?" and everybody says it every scene. Like every character constantly <laughs> was says "Was ist das?" "Was ist das?" It was a time machine. "Was ist das?" Oh, it's time travel. "Was ist das?" Oh, it's you know a sexy oh a sexy dream between two people who are aunt and nephew. <laughs> was das? Um, right, right, right. Um, oh, that's great. But, goodness gracious, I love this scene between Michael and Jonas so much. One thing you yeah. and I haven't discussed yet, mainly because it's a bit of a thematic thread through the series, through this season, and so maybe we'll come out more in in our you know more robust talk next week. But there's a whole heck of a lot of God talk in this season. There is, there is, and there was some last like. It's embedded in the show from last time around, but I do feel like it's far more prominent this time around. Like well, the argument, the, yeah. the the differing perspectives. Uh, well, and Adam specifically builds this very sort of uh, sharp case time is God. about yeah, 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 and like yeah. we're trying to defeat time itself. <clears throat> One of the things I loved about the Michael Jonas scene. Once the full turn has happened and they both kind of stand in new awareness of, of the pivot that just happened. You know what I mean? Like Jonas saying, don't commit suicide. I know you're thinking about it. He said, what are you talking about? I wasn't Oh wait, Mm. you're here Mm -hmm. because now I'm supposed to. And now they kind of, kind of taught themselves into that. I could be wrong, but I think there's this, lovely moment where Michael either hugs or kisses Jonas even. And part of yeah. the, part of the dialogue he says to him is God doesn't air. Yeah. And yeah. And yeah. I just love that Adam has fed Jonas this plot to kind of, if time is God to overthrow God and his father, whom Jonas came to convince not to kill himself and in doing so convinced him to do it tells him, mm-hmm. God makes no mistakes. Yeah. And it's just this really beautiful kind of thing that happens there. Yeah. Um, And the look on Jonas's face as he's leaving, like the weight, the the weight of, I have not, like, to think about that from the character's perspective, my father died by his own hand 
And then I've been carrying this around through the corresponding months and, you know, uh, however long he has aged as he's been traveling back and forth through time, like all these uh, months and months, possibly even extending over a year or more. And now I have, I'm in the same space with my father as I remembered him the day before I lost him forever. And I'm in the same space. We share these few fleeting moments and now he's going to go off and do this thing. Like uh, the, the, the actor playing young Jonas, like he, he conveys, yeah. Oh, and he's powerful. And he conveys so much of that emotion as Claudia is leaving leading him away. And now he's got to say goodbye. And you just, you just feel uh, emotionally, I, I do feel like the show earns uh, that magnitude, and so uh, so yeah, it's it, it is very affecting and very powerful. Um, it is fascinating for me to think pivoting away from some of that richness. It is fascinating to try to grasp what Adam's ultimate plan is, because then you know we get apparently old Magnus, and one would presume, I guess, old Francesca uh, or Francisca that like. They enter the frame. We've never seen them uh, in their older version, uh, but it pivots back to Adam after the inevitable montage that concludes every episode of Dark, apparently. Um, Then it pivots back to uh, Adam, and then Magnus asks him, old Magnus asks him, why didn't you just tell him why you really sent him? Like, why didn't you, why didn't you unveil what you're really trying to do? So I was like, oh, okay, all right. And they're, they're, they're scratching at something bigger, broader, more complex. I just can't get a handle right now because Adam is Jonas, and Jonas, we know, is a protagonist, uh, presumably a hero of sorts. So I'm like, how are you positing that your hero and your big bad, as you keep referring to him, are... How can they be one and the same? Like, how are the so? What are the intentions here? Are the intentions good? Are the intentions malevolent? Like, what's what's going on here? I'm struggling to grasp that. Yeah, <laughs> I know you've seen the next two episodes, and yeah. I have not. So, well, um, I, I mean, yeah. you know, you there is a line Adam says to Noah uh, in episode five. Um, I think it's to Elder Noah. Um, where he says there are moments that last forever. There is pain that never goes away. Um, mm. and I still think some of what I said last week to you about how you'll feel by the end will probably still be the same, but okay, there is, um, the, the note pain that never goes away with respect to the Adam slash Jonas character is yet to fully bear itself out. Um, ah, yeah, okay, yeah. okay. Um, um, he looks. In a, we, he, lo- he looks in a mirror. Finally, Adam. <laughs> That's his Adam's like, oh, no, my God. My God. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um. So, uh, before we leave the episode, I just want to comment on a couple of other nice moments with Jonas. Just in passing, I don't have much more sure. to say about them other than that were they were nice moments. Uh, the scene like that you called out to when you asked for my opinion. Ultimate fist bump where he sees mm-hmm. Jonas sees young Mikkel again, where he sees the whole Nielsen family on that day. That was, that was really strong. Uh, when he professes his love to Martha after mm-hmm. his contemporary version has left and that spirals into their, uh, you know, their ultimate intimacy. 
Um, so yeah, there's just a couple of really nice moments that Jonas has in this episode. Um, again, it is, I don't want you to feel like I didn't enjoy the episode. There are things about it that I loved. I think the ultimate impact of what might've been experienced for me was, uh, not even diluted by you overhyping it, but just was a bit undercut by the fact that I kind of intuited the big reveal that the, that the episode was going to give me. And so because of that, it just diluted a bit of its power. I mean, and. Yeah, if if I don't remember if I just was binging them and wasn't processing, but yeah, if you're going into six anticipating what he's after is going to be what he causes, then yes, that that will be a bit yeah. of a, a, a deflation there. And and mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. as usual, you once more prove yourself the George to my Lenny and just kind of <laughs> you know. Pull that, pull, pull, pull that rabbit out of the hat. <laughs> tell me Just about look it. off in the distance, Nathan. Yeah, tell yeah, me, yeah, yeah. Tell, tell me about the tell rabbits, me. George. Um, <laughs> tell me about the nuclear power plant. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> tell me about an aunt making out with her nephew. That ain't right. Um, oh, my gosh. I, 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 I do also, of this episode, um, it's, I, just, I just enjoy watching these characters you have come to appreciate just engaging on a normal basis um yeah. little little notes like there's just the fun summer day basking at the lake kind of vibe and poor bartosh who just just sucks he's just a bad he's just a bad character he, just, he never yes. gets a break but his yeah, his just nothing. like failed flirting with martha <laughs> after they leave the lake it's so bad it I like really bad. i like your hair i mean you know what i mean your hair's nice you have hair you know um <laughs> But I do love the adults. I love Katarina and Ulrich. And even in this scene, you kind of feel for Hannah. Like, um, by the end of the season, you won't anymore whatsoever. Um, But, you know, even even in uh, this flashback episode, I just really enjoyed all those interactions. Yeah, it's it's nice to see those characters experiencing some joy for once after literally spending, you know, uh, like, 15 episodes with them not experiencing joy in a bit of uh, strange strange uh, in the real happening I watched uh, this episode uh, last night to the recording today I was uh, you know just play I have several playlists on my on my phone and one of them is just a, a playlist of some of my favorite 80s music and heaven is place on earth came on and it was immediately followed by never going to give you up and I was like oh boy this is this is ominous. The, machine, those are the, the two. machines are listening, Reed. Yes, because those are the two. Those are the two songs that they played at the party, and I was like, "Oh boy!" But uh, no, I mean, it was uh, it was good to, I mean, to I see them experience. It can't yeah. be like listeners may think I'm overstating, but uh, you know, maybe fifty percent of this episode's pleasure to me is when "Ooh, baby, do you know what that's worth." <laughs> you know, kind of gets belted out in that scene. Like, damn, I love this song so much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna watch this song on repeat. You actually didn't write, write down anything else from the episode. Yeah. You just like yeah. watch that song. It's like, oh it's man, like, it's my favorite. This is why it's your favorite episode. Right, right, right. right it's right, like, dude, what's right, yes? What's all Belinda up to these days? Oh, she's dead. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know. <laughs> oh, <laughs> got super dark. Yeah. Um, hey, so built into the show. So. Uh, so I think that, uh, we'll leave it there, uh, until, uh, next week. So that will, uh, make it (coughs) (coughs) tune in next week where we will clear our throats one final time on this installment of 
Hashtag TV Guideposts, presented to you by The Fear of God, where we're covering the Netflix series Dark, Season 2. Next time around, there's going to be even more discussion, because that's going to be all the discussion. Tune in to find out what we were disappointed in, what the writers could have done better, <laughs> how the performances were so much better so wonderful and and how there are still some great moments but how we just can't quite seem to get over that fleeting moment in the Nielsen's party before everything went to hell where we have the wonderful Belinda Carter singing (laughs) ooh baby baby. don't don't know where that echo came from because I'm hearing hearing some some different echoes Oh boy. Stop. Please. Stop, Reed. Stop. (laughs) Please tune in next week. Please (laughs) tune in next week. Make this stop. Please tune in next week. Oh. You know, I thought about, uh, instead of my tune, I thought about layering into there, Reed. You haven't even borne witness to the level. Uh You haven't even borne witness to the level of tragedy poor Ulrich Nielsen succumbs to. Oh my gosh, man! Yeah. Here's, here's so here's what you have set know, me up for know, in the I next know, two episodes. You've set me up for I'm gonna hate Hannah even more than I already do. Mm-hmm. Ulrich is I'm gonna feel bad for Ulrich even more than mm-hmm. I already do, and I'm gonna be uh, perhaps equivalently <laughs> frustrated with the ending of so. Yes. So, ladies and gentlemen, All tune in next things. week because I don't know what the hell happens from here because <laughs> like. I don't know what we're going to talk about. Supposedly next week is going to be our conversation about how wonderful all this stuff is going to be. And, uh, and it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be fascinating. It's going to yep. be really interesting. All three of those things will likely take place. Okay. Mm, but Riri, today. Today. Tonight. Today. We are discussing a film. So this is interesting. Um, I don't have uh, a ton of trivial information on this film uh, because there's there's really not a ton out there, uh, at least not that, that I could find. But we're, we're covering a film uh, as our last film in this series of hashtag speaking in tongues. We're covering a film called Tigers Are Not Afraid. And uh, this is a film that sort of ran the... It was made in, like, 2016, started hitting the festival circuits in 2017, but never gained any traction where it was distributed uh, domestically until this year. Shudder acquired it, and uh, the only as of this recording, the only place where you can watch this film, unlike a lot of other Shudder exclusives where, like, you can watch it if you have the Shutter service. You can watch those films as just part of the service, but they are available to rent elsewhere in other outlets. This one is unique in that it is only available on Shutter. Like you have to set up for a sign up for a free trial or pay for a month or something to get access to this film. But uh, I would encourage you to do so. I think the film is very powerful. Um, but it, the premise of the of Tigers Are Not Afraid. It takes place in the during the drug wars of uh, you know kind of the Mexican tar- cartel. Uh, they talk about some statistics of some people, some adults who had died as victims of this drug war. But then it says right up top of the film, it said there are no numbers for the children that would that would have been left behind. Um, and the film follows a group of uh, primarily five young kids as they're trying to survive and make their way through this nightmarish landscape that is 
the desolated, drug-torn, conflict-torn uh, areas of Mexico where there's just no, uh, there's just no stability, there's no security, and uh, so the film focuses on those children. Before you went into the film, how how much was this a, a, a cold viewing? You didn't know anything. You just sort of went into the film. Uh, yes. In fact, you had probably referenced that it was Spanish language at some point, but even that was a little surprise to me until I queued it up. Ah, gotcha. Yeah. And and I've honestly I've watched it about a time and a half now. I did re- ah. I did reengage today just to kind of. I didn't skim it. I just prop, I watched probably the first thirty minutes or so, and just to kind of re reacquaint myself. Um, you alluded to minimal, trivial bits, but one I, I did happen to watch the trailer today, which I had not done the other day, or when I initially watched it. And I don't know if you've watched the trailer, but the trailer has uh, uh, callouts of this film from not just Stephen King, not just Neil Gaiman, but oh, also. Wow. Guillermo del Toro, like all three of them wow. get bylines in the uh, in the trailer. And in fact, That's heavy you, may, you may not know this, but because a lot of what I was reading today, uh, Isa Lopez is the name of the director and writer. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, apparently for her next project, del Toro has kind of taken her under his wing. Um, but oh, she, she cites wow. him very heavily as an influence. Uh mm. Wow. And it's it's pretty evident. So so one thing Reed left out a little bit there, though it would reveal itself pretty eminently, is just with th- these children of of lost parents and and a lost civilization, even uh, as its backdrop, a convention of the film itself is a more kind of mystical, magical, kind of dark fairy tale kind of vibe. Um, yeah, magical it, realism specifically. Yeah, yeah, and and the incident that sort of invokes a lot of that or initiates some of that is a shooting that happens at the lead character. Her name's Estrella. Uh, at her school is a shooting outside, and her teacher, to comfort her, gives her these three pieces of chalk, and says they've been talking about fairy tales, and says these are three mm. three wishes um, meant to comfort her, but those become kind of a a set piece of the film throughout. Yes, yes. As as they're making their way through the different, uh, you know, tribulations and uh, and struggles that they're trying to overcome, uh, she occasions to use each of the three wishes. And it, we'll we'll talk about it. I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure we'll be talking about several aspects of this film. But those wishes um, sit in a very complicated place in my heart because um, it almost you would expect in. The idea of you're dealing with children, they are trying to survive in a hostile landscape already, and so these wishes are presumably going to be, you know, boons of hope and benevolence to them. But in point of fact, all three of them almost take on the type of wishes of the monkey's paw variety, where like when she when she makes the wishes, something if something somewhat fortunate happens in the immediate it is followed by something either frightening or dangerous or, you know, worsens their condition, uh, which I found really interesting. But, um, yeah, one of the, so speaking in sort of uh, broad terms, my notes for this film are uh, just somewhat scattershot. They're not, uh, they're not broken down into our usual segments, but um, I wrote down the opening lines of the film 
because I found them so powerful, the first viewing and, and even more so to me the second viewing. She is talking in voiceover over top of that school shooting occurrence that you referenced. Um, she's talking about a prince who wanted who wanted to become a tiger because tigers, uh, you know, are, they have sharp teeth to break the bones of their uh, of their prey, and and uh, they are not afraid, which is the title of the film, and it it recurs as a statement a few times in the film. But this is the line that I wrote down. She says in this voiceover, she says, but the prince couldn't become a tiger because he had forgotten how to become a prince. We forget that we are princes, warriors, tigers, when the things from outside come to get us. And as a kind of an opening shot across the bow for this film, I was immediately captivated. I was like, wow, we're, we're already dealing with something that's going to be very emotional, that's going to be after some big ideas, um, and I, uh, again, found it uh, almost immediately arresting. In general, like, how did you, how did you feel about the film? Um, rather galvanized. Uh, it is one of those I can't decide if I wish I had known a little bit about it. Um, ah, you okay. know, uh, but this is one Reed has affectionately referenced how, and by Reed I mean you, <laughs> Uh, you've affectionately referenced how knowing or you can gauge my response to a thing by how eminently and what I text you in relation to the viewing and uh, the credit started rolling and I typed out a treatise that I'm sure will come up and screenshot and send it to you. I'm like, this is, this is all like right off the top of my head here. Um, so I, it is difficult to kind of just know where to start here because Mm, just mm -hmm. the nature of the narrative is so wrenching it the film itself reminds me a lot of pan's labyrinth um yes yeah but it does almost uh pan's labyrinth is a more skillful outing which is not to take away from tigers it's just you know it's, it's got a lower budget clearly and some of the cg struggles a little bit because of that but one reason i even think tigers might be more affecting is its proximity, you know, it's, it's, it's mm-hmm. currentness. Um, you know, th- th- it should come as little surprise though. We're a little distance from the beginning of speaking in tongues at this point, but speaking in tongues as a concept, at least from my sort of position was very much, uh, spurred on by the tragedy that was unfolding at our border our, our mm, the, right. the, the U S Mexico right. border. And, and so that's what, that's all I mean when I say I might have I wonder what would have how it would have even more profoundly impacted me if I'd known going in that this was dealing with you know the child victims of of you know violence plagued Mexican society and right right and you kind of um, you kind of can't engage this film without. In engaging that idea, you know, engaging right. the the moment we're in, um, you know, like my God, there's a moment, and and we haven't even really fleshed out much of the plot beyond the inciting stuff. But Estrella sure. gets, she comes home from school one day, and her mom's just missing, just gone. Yeah, she's like, just gone. And yeah. and honestly, mm-hmm. even that, I was confused at first. I was like, did I miss something? Um, mm-hmm. But nope, she's she's just gone, and and presumably the victim of well, no, I mean I'm sorry, the 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 film definitively declares the victim of you know kind of drug goings on, but right, right. So then 
there's this heartbreaking moment where she's leaving a voicemail for her mom and she says, I'm hungry. And, and, oh, and, and where, gosh. where are you? And then eventually she, she has to leave, uh, her home, but these hauntings have begun because her first wish is, um, mm-hmm. and I wrote down the actual text, but her first wish is I wish my mom would come back. And yes. as, as you just alluded yes. in this monkey's paw type of idea, a ghost of her p- appears of the mother appears and is, and by ghost, it's not like some happy, happy Casper type thing. It is. A, oh no. A, it's a very haunting, haunting spectral sort of, uh, spirit of vengeance in the form of mom, yes. if you will. Well, yes. anyway, so she flees in terror from her home and, and sort of falls in with this group of street kids. And, and I don't know if this clicked with you. It didn't for me. So I'm not giving myself credit here. You are still the George Jamalini, but, um, <laughs> so in the film, there's four boys, uh, by name, Moro shine is what they call him, but his, his yeah. name is spelled shine, uh, pop P O P and Tuki or Tuxi, but there's these four boys and yep. shine is the the little ringleader and dude, the performances from him and Estrella are just staggering. But where I'm go, where I'm going is this review I read was identifying a, uh, Peter Pan, Wendy dynamic with the other three as the lost boys, um, there that I just, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I just really loved. Yeah. And I agree with that. Like, it's funny. I didn't, it didn't ping for me, but that's definitely the dynamic that they sort of set up with him as the sort of, uh, leader, male figure and then her because of what happens with her second wish becoming sort of the proxy female leader um and uh yeah it's it's fascinating i would never have put that together with a peter pan dynamic but where i was going with that in terms of its relationship to speaking in tongues and just our our daily moment is the moment when morrow in the middle of the night gives her an animal cracker and yeah you know this child in multiple bites right like what you and I yeah. would, what you and I would take in handfuls, this child takes in in nibbles to mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. to make it last, and and yeah. I kid you not, what I wrote down is, oh my god, I have stuffed my face with candy for two days, and this poor kid is happy with a single animal cracker. You oh know? man, I mean yeah. it's rough. It's rough. This is yeah, rough. Of if if you are uh, a middle class American and you mm-hmm. can't and 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 you don't struggle a bit with this film, you are a bit tone deaf and out of touch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I totally agree. And even you know that the moment that you're articulating about the animal cracker is the most obvious and profound of those. But you know the fact that they're they're stealing cups and noodles. You know, that's there. And that like, you know, one of the kids, I believe, I believe it's um, Tuxi, uh, like has to, he picks the peas out because he doesn't like it. And they're like, that's your vegetables. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like these yeah. dehydrated cup of noodles, like these little peas. Um, and it is, it's, it's, it's immediately apparent as you're watching the film that these kids are in raw survival mode. And the motif that you mentioned earlier sort of in passing the film has an element of what uh, stylistically is referred to as magical realism where the film itself is presented as a realistic thing and then in the midst of this very realistic story there is you know 
a dragon that will fly in and out of a cell phone. There is a, a, a stuffed tiger that will move around and will in, interact with the characters. There is, most prominently, because uh, it happens so early in the film, there is a, a sliver, a, a drip of blood that becomes this kind of pursuant thing that goes after the kids. Um, and uh, it's constantly like following them, and sometimes they feel like they see it, and they run away from it, and everything. And all these, all these sort of magical elements to it. Um, it what was really fascinating to me about the film is the way that it danced between the real and the fantastical, but the lines were so blurred that. To the perspective of the child, it was like it's all sure. real. Sure. Like to the perspective of the child, it's like yes, we know that the you know Im- embedded gold snake on the handle of that gun did not suddenly come to life and crawl down and and do all this other thing. But to you know to Australia, that it, that is absolutely what happened to her. You know, like there's no call out from the kids that this is not real. Like to them, this is all real. This is all happening. And I found that really interesting because it is nightmarish to consider what they are up against. I mean, they're literally the 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 Huascas, uh, mm-hmm. the, the the members of yeah the gang uh, show no qualms whatsoever about threatening them, and ultimately, in two specific moments, straight up killing them. And so the 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 nightmarish scenario that they're up against is uh, is something that I feel like films are not readily willing to go to. Like, honestly, when, and I know we're kind of tap dancing all over the place, but when, when Moro dies, mm-hmm. I was, I mean, I was floored. It's mm-hmm. about maybe two-thirds into the film, uh, but I was floored. I was like, oh, my God, they really killed one of them. That is just, I like, I can't. I can't believe it. Like you kind of think. Well, and what we haven't drilled down on is the expert casting of these five kids. Sure. My gosh. Like these are fully realized, you know, just embodied little performers and they're all in, they're all infectious and just a joy to watch engage with each other. Even their interactions are so real. Yeah. So real. And, and Moro specifically whom you're referring to is this, little mute kid and he's mute because of what he's born witness to. And, but he yeah. care he's the yeah. one who carries around that stuffed tiger. Um, mm. Mm. and just in a, a, just a scene of casual violence gets taken out. Yeah. And it's, it's real it's really pretty heartbreaking. And so that's, that's something that I found. I do feel like you mentioned earlier, and I do think it's a, a very appropriate cousin to Pan's Labyrinth. I think one of the differences there is, um, and again, I, d- I don't know the depth of um, Isa Lopez's filmography uh, up to this point. I think she'd done some short films, and I see there's there's a couple of other uh, a couple of other things that she's got out in the ether that I've not been privy to seeing. But uh, the I, I know that Pan's Labyrinth was you know Guillermo del Toro. I think is either fourth or fifth film, but it, it feels a little bit more thematically coherent than sure. Tigers Are Not Afraid does. Um, Tigers Are Not Afraid, I feel like, definitely taps into something substantial emotionally that it really captures in a way that I think Pan's Labyrinth does as well, but um, that it, it captures a spirit 
of what it must be like for these children to try to navigate and maintain sense. They're being forced to grow up immediately. Like they're being forced to survive. And that's the thing that the opening statement of that line of the film uh, stood out to me. It's like he could not become a tiger because he had forgotten how to become a prince. There's a moment very early on, if not the first moment we see, where Shine, or Shine as they call him, he takes a gun from a gang member. And for a moment, while the gang member is relieving himself against a wall, uh, Shine has the gun pointed towards him, but can't bring himself to pull the trigger. And after you know the, the gang member finishes and, and then just moves on, Shine breaks down and just begins to sob by this wall. And uh, you can you can sense that he wants so badly to be big, bad, tough. He wants so badly to be, and with the gang, he's definitely the alpha, but he wants so badly to be, as the statement calls out, a tiger. But he can't do that because he's forgotten even how to be a boy. Like, he, does, he has no sense of uh, direction, purpose, environment, anything of that. It's, it's just survive and do whatever you have to and can to survive. Well, and to and your, so, to your yeah. point, you didn't reference this, but maybe it, it did register for you when that voiceover you're talking about of Australia discussing, you know, princes who forget their princes and, and, you know, we kind of lose ourselves when the outside comes in or however it's phrased. I can't remember, but yeah, um, yeah. that voiceover is over scenes of China. Like, like it's yes. very, it's very yes. deliberate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. So I have a couple. So, I mean, I I love so many things about the film. Do you have anything more that would that would categorize as kind of a likes dislike before we pivot into more frightening elements? Of um, it? I mean, I just again, I love the kids' interactions with each other. I love what feels like. It's interesting. I saw a review that criticized this as a as a as a ding, and I was like, no way. But I love the comedic elements of it. Um, yeah, like the oh, bo- yeah. the boys' playfulness with each other. They're they're making. They're they're being children in a world that yeah. will refuse that of them, and and so I yes. just love some of the comedy aspects that are born of their engagements with each other, and even the non funny stuff that's along the same lines of like I love that scene where they're playing soccer with each other and yeah. where they're auditioning each other. It's what oh, we kind of called out to at the beginning. You know, it's it, it is it's it, it's this just free fantasy play that the world. Uh, I love the way you phrased it. The world would deny them that. And and so they found it in these brief moments where they're just alone together, and uh, and they just and they just play and they just have have some un <laughs> some unstructured fun time and uh, and that is I, I think that's a real plus to the film. I'm surprised anybody would ding that down. Yeah, I think the note was it was tonally inconsistent. Like, give me a break, man. Like you've never been. Oh a come kid, on, clearly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you've never been a child. Right, you were born right. a bitter old man. <laughs> <laughs> some some people are read. Yeah, what about what about scary stuff? There's a lot. There's a lot. Okay, so um first up when Australia is running away from the blood sliver, uh when they are in uh, sort of immediately following that scene where they're all playing soccer and auditioning each other and everything and she walks into the room with all the dead wrapped up in tarps. Nope. And uh, yep. And nope. Australia's yeah, Australia's mom is like bring them to us, that is terrifying. That whole sequence is just absolutely terrifying. 
I also wrote down when she falls down the garbage chute. Oh, that's awful. And you're jumping to these like final scare scenes. I mean, you're good. You're good. Well, but these yeah, are like yeah. down the road. <laughs> well, but and the, and the I just mentioned them because they you know connect to one another because yeah. the scene where she runs into a room and sees the vision of all of these dead wrapped in tarps. You would presume that that is so she's not seeing a physical thing that this is an that this is an imagined thing, but I think when she falls down the garbage chute, I think she has really stumbled upon where they have like left the bodies. I think she has fallen oh, yeah. among the bodies, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is horrific. And then, as if that is not horrific enough, the body of her mother reanimates in front of her and in a moment that in a film in in most other films this would not work but while it is terrifying it is also kind of moving because the the mother is like not trying to hurt her obviously Mm -hmm. Um, but she's witnessing what has happened to her mother and that is horrific in and of itself but then the bracelet the yeah. bracelet of birds that her mother had said, you know, she asked when she could have it, and her mother said, you know, when I'm not around anymore. Right. Um, and so, oh, man. But then the bracelet sort of, like, flies off of mother's hand and wraps around Estrella's. And uh, it's amazing to me a scene like that can be simultaneously pretty jarring and frightening and at the same time be alarmingly moving, uh, which is speaks to the power of the film for me. Sure. Well, and you know, a little bit of plot we left out, but Shine when he grabs that gun at the beginning, who he's taking it from is a lieutenant of the kind of main yes. drug guy in this region who's also, by the way, uh, a corrupt politician or running for political <laughs> office right, um, right. under the guise of a very happy-go-lucky persona. But his lieutenant's gun and cell phone get taken. On the cell phone is a video of polit- politician guy ultimately murdering Estrella's mother. And so the kids get caught in this pursuit by these thugs to retrieve the cell phone. And you know what, what you just identified of these bodies are the victims of their, their brutality. And, and it's um, so awful. You know, there, there are multiple jump moments in this movie, but like her grabbing the snack bag and this is the first time you see cellophane mom, right? Oh, I don't yes, remember that. yes. So that's a mm-hmm. big jump. Dude, 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 those fingers no. in the cup. Mm-mm, mm-mm. That ain't nope. right. That, that ain't, ain't right. right. That ain't those right, Those creepy fingers right. coming out, that ain't right. Yes, nope. Um, right. You mentioned the, the room full of zombies. Uh, I'm using the word zombies, but. Um, yeah, yeah, no, of course. Now, I jumped. So there's a scene where it's toward the end, towards the end, right around where you were just talking. But so the horde is pursuing her. She takes refuge in that room and is sitting on the vent that you don't, as a viewer, really know is there until all of a sudden the hands all reach out and start grabbing at her. Yes. Oh, yes. I jumped out of my seat. (laughs) It's it's a pretty harrowing moment. No, absolutely. Um, Something that is uh, both tragic and um, I just wrote the word oof. Um, Her third wish is that. uh, Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, it's so rough. Shine has, uh, because of his house was burned down, he has some burn scars on the side of his face. And they mention it a couple of times through the course of the movie that he wishes they were not there. So her third wish, 
Um, but we didn't mention what her second wish was. So her first wish was that her mom would come back, which she does as a spectral figure. Then they try to kill the lieutenant that is pursuing them. Uh, they, they have a gun, and so they try to kill him. She somewhat volunteers, somewhat gets pushed into trying to kill him, and then her second wish is that she would not have to, and when she walks into the room, she discovers that he has already been killed by somebody else. Um, but through some coincidental things, she takes credit for it, and then that sort of embroils them more deeply into the path of this corrupt politician that you that you discussed earlier, Nathan. But um, her third wish is that the burn scars on Shiny's face would go away, and very shortly after she wishes that, um, then uh, in a way that's going to sound like dismissive or, or like perhaps a bit callous when I say this, this is literally what happens. That the moments after she wishes that his burns would go away, he takes a bullet to the face in a way that could be a lot more graphic than they, like it's, it's, it's more restrained than my description even just there because you can imagine a lot of grotesque gore and everything like that. It is traumatic. It's very it's it's very rough, but um, but he takes a bullet right over top of his burn scars, and of course, shiny. Then like he, he he's gone, he's dead, and it's uh, it's devastating. It's devastating. So it's so I mean, devastating. It is absolutely devastating. Um, we don't even know what happens to you know. As we mentioned earlier, Moro has died in this sort of like casual gunfight, and then we don't even know what happens to Pop and uh, Tuxi. Because he, uh, because they run off when the, when you know it all starts to hit the fan, they run off, and the show never, the movie never gives us a resolution to their story. But one thing that I found, so that would be kind of a, a scare slash sad, because I jumped tremendously the first time I saw that uh, Shine's death scene. But then afterwards, when she has managed to kind of trap the the corrupt individual that the, the ringleader that's coming after them, she's managed to kind of track. Yeah. The politician, she's managed to trap him in a room, but she has no weapon. She has nothing that she can do about that. But then she sees in a really moving moment, uh, she sees Shiny's ghost and Shiny has had this whole time in the real, when he was alive, he's had this lighter that was uh, retrieved from when his house burned down and uh, so he's had that lighter. She sees his his spirit, and uh, they exchange a goodbye, and then he goes in, presumably sets the room that the politician is trapped in on fire and takes him out. And what is said over top of that, I'm not, uh, maybe this is pivot to theme, maybe not. What is said over top of that moves me tremendously because when she says goodbye and we've seen Shine, the opening lines, as you mentioned, Nathan, the opening lines are said over top of him breaking down because of how afraid he is. But then these lines, as he steps in and basically takes out the big, the big bad, albeit as a, as a spirit, as a ghost, but over top of that, we're treated to these words. It says, tigers are not afraid. They have been through all the bad stuff and come out the other side. They are kings of this kingdom of broken things. Nathan, the line, they are kings of this kingdom of broken things. I do not have words right now to encapsulate my feelings on hearing that line. In the context of this film, or really any story, just kings of this kingdom of broken things uh, moved me tremendously in, in 
thinking about and trying to unpack my thoughts and feelings about this uh about this film well i'm gonna Um, i'm gonna nuance that dialogue a little more because it's important at the top of the film when you identify the tiger dialogue that plays over shine it on screen it's astrea saying it well yes yes this that you just referenced i took very intentional notes here it's shine it doing the voiceover and then yes yes, immediately after they are kings of this kingdom of broken things she comes in her voice comes in and says because we have to remember we are princes we are warriors and tigers and tigers are not afraid and Mm -hmm. and all of this is over the visual once they sort of have their unspoken goodbye to each other and shina walks into this room and sets it ablaze she turns and again, imagined or not, it kind of doesn't matter at this point. There's a living, live, life-size, actual tiger before her. Yes. No and longer it, a stuffed tiger. No. and it A live tiger, yeah. It does move. Uh, it, either, it either moves aside a door or indicates this door that she pushes through. And, and that's when her lines are over the voiceover. And she opens this door where behind her and her whole life really was desolate and empty and alone uh she opens these doors into a green field and and walks into Mm. it and that's um i am taken up by this film and my voice is bothering me a little bit but um that's kind of the final image of the film um yeah and it's important you know like none of these things are accidental uh we refer sure, the film refers sure. to him as shina his name is shine her name means star like this is huge these are just very big yeah oh yeah absolutely sort absolutely of. um do you care no please um please, by all means. i mean we're at the we're at the end uh into theme here and and it's funny because honestly, the main reason I sent you this little diatribe the other night wasn't to be like, guess what, Reed? I'm going to say a lot of stuff. But really, just <laughs> no, to yeah, kind of applaud you here, George, that, you know, like, <laughs> I, it's funny because if you remember my befuddlement at the whaling opening our series, I'm like, well, why is he doing the whaling? Because, you know, like, this, the impetus here mm-hmm. was was sort of like our, our Spanish speaking brothers and sisters. And, and so, you know, uh, I, I applaud your sort of choice here from the standpoint of now r- remind me, you may have told me before, but remind me, um, was it intentional to end on Spanish speaking? Did you know it'd be tigers? Yes. Okay. Yes. So it was intentional to end on Spanish speaking. There are th- three or four heavy hitting contenders, uh, that, were dancing around in the possibilities for coverage that maybe eventually we will get to. But when I saw Tigers Are Not Afraid earlier this year, I, upon viewing it, immediately knew this is, for me, I was like, I'm going to request of Nathan that this close our series. Obviously, next week we'll be speaking about, you know, Dark Season 2 as a whole. But in terms of our films of coverage, I said, I want this I want this to close out the series. Well, and... Kudos to you here. Um, you know, you you guess what Jonas is going to do when he goes back. You're just like <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> I'm on I'm I'm on a roll. Right you now. are, you are, a little lackey. Um, and and so yes, it's fitting that this is a coda to speaking in tongues, and that we should land that series here. 
because, you know, you watch a film like this and it invites you to, in a way that headlines and social media can't and don't and, and the way our self-preservation won't allow us, but we, through a story like this film, bear witness to mm. the horrors of our nearest neighbors. We observe the burden of these families separated, these mm -hmm. children mm -hmm. fending for scraps under the thumb of corrupt politics and complicit authorities. And we began this series with a treatise about Jesus being on every road. And Jesus is, yes, on every road, but he is also handing out solitary animal crackers that sustain. Mm -hmm. He is spray painting memorials to lost children and friends and loved ones. He is not afraid for he is a tiger, a king in this kingdom of broken things. And we are all princes and princesses called to reconcile these lost children, called mm -hmm. to hold to account these corrupt authorities, called like Moro, like Shine, to bury the dead, otherwise left to rot. Yeah. Jesus yeah. is on every road, in every alleyway, on every rooftop, serving as home to the homeless. He is the avenging spirit, setting fire to the corrupt oppressor, the powerful, the abusive. He is the door opening into a green pasture of grace and beauty. He is us. And to reject any other is to reject him. And mm. that was my takeaway from Tigers Are Not Afraid. It's, yeah, yeah. I I echo and amen. Um, I think it's something that was really, uh, has been on my mind a lot recently that is uh, perhaps uh, somewhat, tangential to the substance of this film but uh, but I'm bringing in here there's a uh, there's a moment in uh, John chapter 11 I do not think I've ever referenced this on the show before but there's a moment in John chapter 11 which is the narrative of Lazarus and uh, where Lazarus was Lazarus had died and and Mary and Martha believed that if Jesus had been there then Lazarus would never have died and uh, it is famous for being the shortest verse in the Bible, but there's a moment where, you know, John eleven thirty five says Jesus wept, and that's all it says. It's just Jesus wept. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of uh, contexts that different people have referenced that, but to provide some context for the what's happening in that biblical passage and then bring it back to Tigers Are Not Afraid is I've always found it very compelling about that passage for as, I mean, I say always, for as long as I've been cognizant of this, um, for many, many years, I've found it compelling that at the moment that the scriptures call that moment out, Jesus has arrived and he has a conversation with Martha and, and they have a, a little bit of exchange and Martha is saying like, yeah, I, yeah, I know, I know Lazarus will eventually rise. Like eventually all things will be made well. Like eventually, because Jesus tells her, your brother will live again. And she's like, yeah, I, yeah, I know someday, someday far off, all will be made right and brother will live again. And then Jesus asks for Mary. Mary's reaction is much more emotional, much more volatile and so then Jesus tells her, you know, and she says, you know, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And he tells her, take me to where you've laid him. And it is at that moment that she decides to, Mary decides to take Jesus to the tomb. 
that's the moment he weeps. Mm. And what has struck me in my thoughts of, of late uh, as terribly profound is this notion that it is not simply out of sympathy or compassion, uh, although those are definitely rooted in what's going on. This is a moment, according to the scriptures, when Jesus is about to heal the wound. In that passage of scripture, Jesus is about to make things right, and yet it is in that moment that he weeps with them. It's in that moment that as he accompanies them down to address the need that he weeps with them. And that I find tremendously powerful and tremendously profound. It is not in some broken down aftermath. It is not in some preliminary pleading, but in, in the moment on the path in, in, as we've described it through the context of the film in this kingdom of broken things, um, you talked and referenced earlier, it's like, yes, the, the visual image of Jesus handing out a solitary animal cracker is neither uh, is not any sillier or less sacred than the visual of him breaking bread and fish and passing it out to 5,000 people. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the image of Jesus, uh, or uh, you know, the, the, vi- the visual of Jesus painting a memorial to lost friends and loved one is no different in my mind than him stepping on his way to a tomb with the, the words in one, uh, in one hand, I am the resurrection, and in the other hand, I am the, the life, stepping down to the tomb and still weeping along the way. Right, and that is something that we uh, are, are painfully missing in uh, in even the conversations about how to fix the problem. And I think that is something that I, I'm 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 actually not uh, going to get political, not not out of any sort of specific resistance, but just because I think the implications are farther reaching than just the political. Although I do think they apply, I think that we have focused too much on. Like, oh, well, I, I, I have the answer. I have the fix. Like, just, just deliver the fix, and, and that, will, that will be the end of it. There are people, children, children, and, and elderly, and wounded, and infirm, and mentally unwell. And th- there are people carrying so much brokenness with them, and that we have, so many of us, lost the simple capacity to weep with them along the way, Mm -hmm. even, even on the way to make things better. The fact that we, that our eyes are so dreadfully dry when it comes to conversations like this, I think breaks the heart of our Lord. And I think should break and chastise our heart at just how dry our eyes remain when things like this happen fine speak to uh you listener uh you friend uh speak to the solution and what needs to be done by all means fix it if you can but do not forget to weep along the way and i find it so again so compelling so emboldening and so inspiring to look at a story like this and think about it in the context of how we approach 
the others beyond our door and how we think about them, how we position them in our hearts and in our minds and, uh, and what we do for them and don't do for them in the process. Um, so that's a, that ends my little mini, mini sermon for the moment. Well, and I think that's part of the power of a film like this. And also the critique to us as consumers and viewers and Americans, uh, those of us who are to not let a film like this just exist as a film. Um, you know, you, because honestly, even with my poetic philosophizing, as I've reflected since viewing this and tried to re-engage the film again today, it's like, it's just too big. It's just too big. And, you know, I think my takeaway from the, the Lazarus story you share that you did articulate, but just saying it aloud for me too, is however we want to define it, victory or healing or gosh, resurrection will happen will happen it will it will occur it will bear itself out in time but that doesn't negate the wound right you know and 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 i think what is difficult for people who attempt compassion and who enter into empathy uh is there's a lot around us who would just say there is no wound Mm. either that or we would rush to the victory and, 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 right. and both are disingenuous, mm-hmm. you, know, Absolutely. you know, like I really am sorry. My voice is what it is, but, um, you're fine. You know, you, you watch this film and it's like, my God, <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. What? And, and skirting the political, but if you can't watch a film like this, and comprehend why people theoretically want to come here. That's a whole lo- other level of disconnect. But right. But the broader takeaway isn't geopolitics, perhaps. Right. For us, right. it's geopolitics is not the solvent. It's compassion mm. and empathy and awareness. And mm-hmm. you know, you you it is too big. It is too big. No question. It's too big. But yeah, you find the little places. That, that you can be passionate about that contribute to a solution and you just yeah. put the hand to the plow. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it, it's true. It's true. There's, I think there's so much, sometimes I get bogged down in the magnitude of what there is to do and in the magnitude and volume of differing opinions and the magnitude of volume of different solutions. Um, and I think a film like this, um, uh, t- I mean, it fires off a, a, a ton of pistons in my brain and we're going to, we're going to wind this down for your voice's sake and for our time's sake and everything. Uh, but, uh, just this film speaks to me so profoundly about the ways in which, I simply don't understand the struggles of other individual people. Mm, like you yeah. put a, you put a you put a face and a story and a name to this, uh, and and it's it is it it changes everything. Like once that story becomes real, then it changes 
it changes everything. And I feel like we philosophize and we posit solutions and we speak and paint in very, very broad strokes. And uh, again, it just, uh, I find it really, really compelling to to look at a story like this and to to consider, and I keep coming back to the animal cracker, just like consider the the substance of just, you know, we're going to, we're going to share this one, this bit of something, this one bit of something while we ourselves take what we have been given so painfully for granted, you know, and we take, uh, we have our challenges and that's not to say your challenges don't hurt and that they aren't hard, but we take our challenges so for granted, uh, when there are so many other struggles throughout the world and and uh, and yeah, that's that's a big part of what this whole series was about. Uh, it's a big part of what uh, you know why we why we wanted to sort of examine these films through this lens in what ways we could. Um, but I'm gonna yeah, I think, I'm gonna throw one yeah, more thing ahead. at you. I'm sorry, but sure, sure. This phrase keeps resonating to me. I had dinner tonight with a peer, and this peer had just, on my recommendation, watched The Haunting of Hill House, and so ah, this is fresh for me on, on my brain, but as part of my little poeticizing a moment ago, the phrase bear witness is in there. Mm, And, mm -hmm. you know, I bring him up a lot, but Richard Rohr talks about suffering, breeding, deepening, you know, that that the deeper and wider we are as, as we scale up in our maturation, in our, you know, comprehension, uh, in our compassion, Mm, mm, that mm. the more we're, able to hold and that that is in itself Christ likeness. You, you, your, your efforts to hold what you can, uh, definitely not all, but right. You know, at the end of Hill house, when, and go back and listen to our episode on Hill house, go watch Hill house. It's amazing. It's beautiful. You love it. But Steve, uh, dad crane, whose first name eludes me, but Hugh, Hugh is talking to the wife. What's her name? Uh, live, live. Good job. Reed. Um, um, I'm amazed I conjured them so quickly. Hugh is talking to Liv. I'm not. You're just a good man. Um, uh, of their specific biological children and the traumas they had endured, he says, we bear witness. Yeah. We, whether they get addicted or lose this and lose that, whether they die, we bear witness. That is the job. And I think in my growing comprehension of faithfulness the perspective has turned from self uh, it's it's woody in toy story 4 it's mm, mm. we no longer isolate ourselves to either a ourself or b the immediate in front it's we now we now offer the universal hope right mm. and what is fascinating to me about a movie like this and and making this very practical like we are aged in such a way where we are we are parents, not just literally, but as in our age. We are we are at the midpoint of the world, right? In terms of our age. Yeah. And so the volume of people younger than us, the volume of people much younger than us is very high. And so yeah. from this parental standpoint, using that Hill House language, we we bear witness. And and bear bearing witness doesn't mean you do nothing. It means only in bearing witness can that compassion and empathy and contemplation grow in such a way that now you understand 
and in that understanding attempt to put action to it. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't know. That's just kind of what keeps, keeps pinging for me here, if you will. Sure. Sure. Um, Close us up unless you've got more. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, th- I, 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 obviously, uh, I, and, and I think a lot of what we've said could be viewed as specific thesis and, and, uh, thesis statements, if you will. Um, but I'll reemphasize that, you know, our intention here is not to wrap things up in a nice, neat little bow because, as you've said several times, some things are just too big. It's just too big to do that. So we explore rather than explain. And uh, yeah, I think uh, I think that's an appropriate time for us to pivot into the fog meter uh, for Tigers Are Not Afraid, filmed by Isa Lopez. Um, so we measure every, uh, every material we cover, um, mostly films, but we uh, measure this in the metric of fear and God, our very specific measure of its scares and its substance. Um, I'll start with the fear measurement on this. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of emotion wrapped up in the things to the degree that it is difficult to untangle what is emotionally gripping and what is uh, specifically sort of frightening and what in that emotional devastation is frightening. So I'm going to land at a seven for the fear measurement for tigers. Uh, I think I'm going to go with a six. I think there's a lot of haunting imagery and that's, and that haunting imagery is quite effective. Um, But I, yeah, I I would say it's more imagery and a few jump scares. So I'm going to, I'm going to land at a six there. Okay. Uh, What would you say for its God meter? (sighs) Um, I mean, it's going to be rooted in context, right? Like I don't, yes, yes, I don't yeah. know that outside of the immediate world we're in, which cannot be separated from it, that this would be the same, but based on my life and my life experience and, and the moment we live in, I'm going to give it a nine. All right. Wow. Um, yeah, I'm, uh, I feel like it's after some in- crucial, important things. I do feel like, in in the spirit of our show, that it seeks more to explore than explain uh, what's going on. Uh, I'm going to pivot slightly down from you. Uh, I'm going to give it a seven for mm-hmm. the God measurement as well. Um, and so that means that we give Tigers Are Not Afraid. Uh, I love me some quarter points, so I'm going to do it. <laughs> so we give, we give Tigers Are Not Afraid 7.25 on the fog meter. <laughs> so, yeah, that's right. That's... You know, that's like uh, like my child who insisted for many months that he was seven and a half, not merely seven. Um, so, yeah, seven point. I wonder where he got that from. You like know? Fa- like father, like son. You know, that's, uh, it's, it's true. And, and ain't, no, ain't no shame in my game. I'll be like, you take that. You take that half, mm. half an inch right there. You take that quarter point. Tigers are not afraid. You take it. You earned it. Um, so uh, 7.25 on the fog meter, but the relevant and more important question perhaps is Nathan, do you recommend tigers are not afraid to viewers? Um, I would not only recommend it. I would say it's necessary. Uh, kind of required viewing. Yes. Um, and and hear me like, I don't even like, I wouldn't, if if you were asking me to make a top five movie of the year, I'm not even sure I would put this on that list, but it is just required to it. Like listeners of our show, who've stuck around. It's not like the people who are like, Oh my God, they're too political after one episode and they bail. Like (laughs) we know you're out there somewhere, but you know, people (laughs) who stick around and know the flavor of things that we're passionate about and thus 
those listeners become passionate about or are already and so glom onto it like they'll love it it's necessary yes oh absolutely yeah i i absolutely think and uh, again i said it last week i said it at the top of this episode i'm going to say it again at the point of this recording perhaps at the record at the point of this release um the only way to watch this is to get a shutter subscription which is only 4.99 for one month you get you know like shutter doesn't sponsor us we wish they would but they don't um but the uh but if you just pay for a month which is uh, pretty much the price of a rental then you'll get to see this film and all the rest that they have to offer and blah 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 but seek this film out i definitely highly recommend it i'm right there with nathan i feel like if you're along the same wavelength of the kinds of things we think about um it's really affecting and powerful film and i think you should see it i absolutely think you should um so nathan i'm gonna give your voice a rest and thank thank you. you very much for pushing through thank our listeners very much for pushing through next week we are going to be going for the uh, foreseeable future for the final time. We're going to be heading back to Wyndon uh, for one last conversation about episodes 7 and 8. But next week is not just going to be a conversation about 7 and 8. We will be looking at our thematic takeaways from the season 2 as a whole to wrap a bow on part 2 of Hashtag Speaking in Tongues. So check out Netflix's dark season two episodes seven and eight and join us next week nathan thank you so much for having this conversation with me and uh thank you listeners as well for for hanging in with us we will see you next week go be tigers the fear of god is the beginning of wisdom but not the end of the conversation and you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways you can follow us on Twitter at The Fear of God. You can like and follow us on Facebook or join the Facebook Fear of God discussion group. You can follow us on Instagram at Fear of God Podcast. Go to morethanonelesson.com to leave a comment on this post or any of the other official episode posts. Email us at fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music was composed by Lee Wright and Reed Lackey. Our podcast art was crafted by Jacob Hunt of jacobhuntcomics.com. Merchandise for the show can be found at tpublic.com. Just search The Fear of God Podcast, all one word. And last but not least, if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating or a review. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.